This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In a complex and dangerous world, the allure of the simple is addictive, but the habits of typecasting can offer us little wisdom. In his new book, Typecasting, on the arts and sciences of human inequality, our guest today, Stuart Ewan, exposes the pivotal developments that have made stereotypes a persistent common language. Co-authored with Elizabeth Ewan, Typecasting chronicles the emergence of the science of first impression and reveals how the work of its creators... Early social scientists continue to shape how we see the world. Stuart Ewan is a City University of New York Distinguished Professor of Film and Media Studies at Hunter College and in the Ph.D. programs in History and Sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center. Stuart Ewan, welcome to Weekly Signals. Uh, pleasure to be here. How are you, Nathan? Yeah, this is Nathan right here. Okay. Uh, how's, it, how's it going there in New York today? Is well, it? it's a beautiful, clear, crisp day. Wow. This global warming stuff is working out pretty well, <laughs> huh? Well, it has its ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. So I'm going to start off real basic with you. Tell me, what do you mean by the arts and sciences of human inequality? Well, one of the uh, most you know fundamental aspects of social reality in almost any society is that people do not occupy equal positions. Even within a democracy, there's a great deal of inequality. Um, according to some philosophies, this is simply you know the result of the survival of the fittest, um, the result of um, natural causes. Um, what we were really interested in doing with this book was to look at how ideas about social inequality began to emerge alongside the development of modern society, colonialism, um, and the development of mass culture. And so over a period, basically what we did was to kind of move in on what we saw as pivotal developments. The book, as you know, is made up of a bunch of kind of short stories, mm -hmm. um, each one of which moves in on a particular development, which has helped shape ideas about inequality as they even exist in the contemporary world. So, you know, we looked, for example, at the science of physiognomy as it emerged in the 18th century, the idea that judgments about other people uh, could be made on the basis of uh, their physical traits, the shapes of their noses, ears, brows, and so on. Um, we looked at the emergence of phrenology, which was really the beginnings of brain localization uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, and which became, by the way, a popular phenomenon in the United States throughout the 19th century, where people were having their heads examined um, in order to affirm their own sense of self and also in order to compare themselves with those who ostensibly had inferior heads. Um, we also look at the development of eugenics, uh, uh, the idea that there are uh, favored and degenerate members of society, that these things can be diagnosed through scientific means, 
and that uh, breeding, in fact, should be enhanced for those who are the superiors and should be interfered with for those who are inferiors. And in the United States, by the way, um, as people who read the book will find out, um, eugenics wasn't just some kind of theoretical uh, plaything. It was something that had a very big impact on social policy regarding immigrants and also regarding the development of forced sterilization practices. And I would say the other thing uh, that runs through the book is an attempt not simply to look at sci- the uses of science in order to justify uh, uh, systems of human inequality, but also the way in which science and popular culture interacted with each other, the way in which ideas of human inequality became part and parcel of uh, the modern media culture as it emerged, really beginning in the middle of the 19th century. We're speaking with Stuart Ewan, the co-author of Typecasting on the Arts and Sciences of Human Inequality. And, and just to uh, go the other way with with uh, stereotyping and typecasting, aren't, are there positive um, ends to that? Is there a, a, a positive kind of typecasting? Well, look, language itself is a form of categorizing. We give things names. Uh, the world is confusing, and making it comprehensible requires, in certain ways, an ability to understand generalizations. So, I mean, I think that to, ex- to some extent, this is a part of uh, human perception, human expression uh, that is almost unavoidable. I think the real problem is when systems of authority, whether they come from science or whether they come from the news media or whether they come from Hollywood film, begin to prepackage assumptions about other people and to disseminate those as knowledge and truth. Um, And at that point, the people who are in a position to name things um, often apply names to those who are not in a position to name things. It's really an issue of power, and I would say to a large extent, uh, typecasting the book is a study of the relationship between stereotype and power. So you would call uh, Carl Rove a master typecaster? Well, I would say to a large extent, a lot of what political consultants have been doing uh, for some time is to package complex realities in ways that will bypass critical thinking on the part of the public and will stimulate um, um, you know, strong emotional responses. I and mean, there's no question that Carl Rove... Um, has degraded um, uh, political and social discussion within the United States through packaging reality in ways that were designed to uh, benefit not just the Bush administration, but to benefit um, uh, social and economic elites in the society. In that vein, uh, talking about the United States and the Constitution, let's go back to the Founding Fathers and what a radical idea it was that they were putting forward that all men are created equal. And yes. that, that seemed to fly in the face of, of pretty much most of what acceptable uh, discourse at that time. Yeah, and that's a really important point because um, uh, in a society, a pre-democratic culture, the assumption that 
the world was made up of unequals was something which was considered God-given. It was something that was reinforced by social and ecclesiastical hierarchies, whether we're talking about kings or popes or whoever. And so inequality was something that was perceived as the natural order of things. Um, The emergence of democratic ideas, the notion that the earth was made to be a common storehouse for all to enjoy, and not one word was said in the beginning that one group of mankind should rule over another. I'm quoting from a pamphlet from the English Revolution in the 17th century. Uh, The idea that selfish imaginations did prevail, and thereby one group of mankind were made slaves unto the other. These kinds of ideas, which challenged the kind of deeply-seated ideas of human inequality, the notion of natural rights, were things which undermined, you know, uh, venerable structures which had maintained inequality as the natural order of things. And I would say modern stereotyping is, to a certain extent, uh, a response to the rise of democracy. Very much in the way that, for example, the uses of public, just to talk about Karl Rove, the uses of public relations and the attempt to sort of manage public opinion uh, is something that is inextricably connected to uh, the rise of democracy. I mean, if, if the public has no voice, then why try and manage their perceptions? It's only when you begin to have the assumptions of democracy that perception management, and I would say uh, the idea of natural scientific differences, um, uh, uh, become necessary so that, you know, even in a world where democratic ideals are beginning to be discussed, there are other people who are making the argument that, yes, democracy is nice, but certain people are more fit to exercise the rights of a democratic culture than others. And by the way, that was the argument in the 18th century, which allowed slavery to coexist with the idea that all men are created equal, that allowed the denial of the right to vote to women to coexist with the idea that all people were created equal. And that was that there are certain kind of scientific realities natural realities, which mean that some people are more fit to exercise the rights of democracy than others. Clearly, once you've raised the idea of human inequality, you know, the battle gets waged, and it's interesting how the language of the Declaration of Independence um, uh, begins to be appropriated by uh, social movements which had, at least in the 18th century, been excluded from the idea of a democratic public. And so, alongside of this, you have the emergence of sciences and popular cultural forms, uh, which reinforce the notion of natural inequality. One of the most uh, uh, decisive examples of that, um, uh, aside from, for example, Hollywood typecasting, but one of the most decisive examples of that, and something we discuss extensively in the book, is the, is the rise of natural history museums, yeah. where you have these kind of <clears throat> uh, public institutions which are you know, presenting people with the height of science and scientific knowledge, which basically, in glass cases, uh, point out that 
certain sectors of humanity are more evolved than others. Some are atavistic and throwbacks to um, primitive forms. Some are more suited to civilization. And, you know, racial science, which emerges uh, as, as a kind of official science in the latter part of the 18th century, begins to emerge, A, almost precisely at the moment that the Declaration of Independence is being written. And I would add that by the 19th century, um, racial science is being turned into a popular entertainment by um, uh, natural history museums and also by uh, sideshow spectacles. Are we uh, stereotyping less uh, these days than we were back at the... You know, it's a really interesting and, for me, a very troubling question, and I think it's something that should be troubling to uh, uh, listeners as well, and that is, I think in the period following the emergence of the Civil Rights Movement um, uh, and challenges to sort of notions that, you know, America and white bread are simultaneously the same thing, um, you really had a questioning of stereotypes. The questioning of stereotype was something that was essential to the rise of women's liberation issues. It was something that was essential to the rise of civil rights questions. And I would say, up in, when we started writing this book, the notion that stereotyping was a form of institutionalized injury that kept certain people down was a basic assumption. And one of the things that's most troubling to me in the contemporary world is the reemergence of sciences now in the form of neuroscience, genetics, evolutionary psychology, um, uh, all of which are sort of arguing that people are hardwired in certain kind of ways, that life is not something which contains any kind of free and democratic will, but that in, in certain ways life is just a playback mode. Um, which is simply playing back stuff that is either hardwired into the brain, which is programmed in the genes, and as a result, um, you know, increasingly there is this idea of biological determinism that has. Become, I mean, I, I picked up the New York Times today, the Science Times, which is one of the you know is carrying on a love affair with biological determinism, and the front page article says is due unto others written into our genes. Um, this notion that that basically genetics, neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, you know, all suggest that we're simply kind of playing out roles that are built into our genetic makeup. Um, this is, you know, in, in many ways, uh, simply a reinforcement of the ideas of racial science, of phrenology, uh, the notion that, you know, there is this kind of essential truth about people and that it can be scientifically diagnosed. And for me, it's no accident that this kind of positivistic science, which reduces everything to something that is predetermined, uh, for example, is coexisting with anti-immigrant feelings in this country. Um, uh, I should say that in the early part, the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, part of the way in which the eugenics movement functioned was to hold on to ideas and to promote ideas of biologically determined difference 
and at the same time to wage war against the large number of immigrants who were coming in to build the country, um, but who were now seen as a threat to the, as, as they referred to themselves, the Nordic stock. Right. And so, um, you know, the, the uses of these kinds of diagnostic, positivistic sciences, you know, which say that, you know, you can read the truth in the genes, or you can read the truth in the shape of the head, or, you know, all reality is something that can be scanned with an MRI machine, um, is, you know, is something that is a very dangerous set of ideas when you also have, um, you know, the notion that some people within the borders of the United States deserve the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and others don't. Right. We're speaking with Stuart Ewan, and the book is Typecasting on the Arts and Sciences of Human Inequality. And I was just thinking of The Bell Curve, which was a very popular book uh, written, I'm going to say, in the 80s, late 80s, early Mm -hmm. 90s, yeah, which somewhat seems, I mean, as I recall, really reinforced a lot of these. Yeah, I think the, the Bell Curve was happening in a society which was still debating these kinds of things that had not sort of become so locked into the kind of Rovian (laughs) <laughs> simplicity that 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 you were referring to before, um, and so the bell curve was something that became a major issue of debate, and was also perceived in certain ways as um, you know science uh, racism masquerading as science. I think what has happened increasingly is that that sort of debate has been to some extent suppressed, and I should say within universities, yeah. it's becoming less and less uh, active. Well, one, one of the things that, as we're talking about this sort of the history of typecasting, is, uh, I can't help but sort of the, the shadow of religion over all of this, or at least of the uh, the human implementation of, of religious doctrine, and how, and I wasn't unaware of this as I was uh, looking through some of the material, that... Um, it was a crime back in the Middle Ages to speak about the Bible with a, if a priest wasn't... Now, I'm, I'm mangling this, but basically a, yes, priest, are, a priest had to be the one to talk about biblical scripture. You well, couldn't... And Go ahead, well, I'm sorry. The Bible was, you know, up the, until um, the, the, the emergence of early... Uh, Protestantism, and I would say early democratic ideas, the Bible was written in a language which was a secret code only readable by the priesthood. Right. The, so, uh, it, yeah. in other words, the idea that ordinary people could could discuss and debate the Bible was very problematic because ordinary people were not permitted, were not in a position to read the Bible. Right. And I would say one of the kind of interesting pieces of history that's related to this is that for a long time the publication or even the translation of the Bible into a language that ordinary people would understand, the vernacular, was considered a um, heresy that was punishable by death. I mean, the, the, the first um, uh, uh, the first English translation of the Bible uh, which was done by a guy named Tyndale, he ended up being burned at the stake. Um, so, you know, there was a very powerful uh, ruling system which ensured that only, you know, only experts 
And I would add that to a certain extent, even though religion continues to be part of the factor, that some of the ways in which contemporary science functions um, is to anoint itself as a priesthood, which is, you know, capable of arguing, for example, that human free will is simply an illusion, right. um, and that, you know, it's all happening on a neural level. It's like, you know, they, it's like... It's like trying to understand the life of a building by simply looking at the plumbing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the that's reason a lot of what it, is going on it, right well, now. And then, as I said, you know, the, the, because you know, you you opened up with a quote from the book, "The Lore of the Simple." Mm-hmm. Is that what it yes. was? Yeah. yeah. The you know is addictive. Um, the lore of certainty is addictive. People live in a very uncertain world. And by the way, in the fields of neuroscience and genetics, there are plenty of people who are arguing this stuff is simply not refined to a point where it's very predictive. Um, And that even if you believe that the genes function as uh, an element of who we are, they are simply a set of possibilities Mm -hmm. which can go in a variety of directions. But that still leaves open the idea of uncertainty, that, that life is something that is filled with unpredictability. And, you know, I think it's almost like people search for immortality, mm-hmm. you know, their fear of death, their fear of their own uncertainty, um, that may make these kind of extremely, you know, simplistic, although, you know, presented in very complex scientific ways, but these very simplistic interpretations of, you know, what it, what it is to be human, so appealing. You know, the finger of people, people desire certainty, that the, that the simple in certain ways offer, that there is some absolute truth, is something that um, offers people a sense of comfort. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, Go ahead. You, you have the computer, you, you have a a vast range of ideas out there right now where we're moving toward right now but you also have a reliance on on image uh, and on our computer screens where do you think we're headed with all of this given that you know we we seem to be going in two directions at once there with image yeah well i mean um, it's it, it's interesting that you mention image because a lot of the ways in which stereotypical ideas have been communicated is visually not in terms of you know, long, extensive texts. Um, And one of the things about images is that they speak to us almost instantly. That is to say, unlike, for example, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't have eyesight, the way in which they put together the world is incrementally. They feel their way through it. They have to listen to sounds unfolding. And so it's something that happens over time, and in certain ways it's a deliberative process. Um, Images um, are not temporal, they're spatial. They kind of create a universe in a moment, and they communicate their ideas in a moment. So, you know, you see a picture of a brain scan, and all of a sudden it has a kind of implicit authority. It, it, It carries all this baggage with it. Now, it may in fact be that there are significant differences between the way in which people process images and other forms of information. 
yet reached a point where sort of unpacking the grammar of images is a part of being educated. And so part of the power of images is that while literacy, you know, is still determined in terms of the written word, um, uh, to a large extent, our educational system, except, you know, within certain fields like advertising, public relations, and so forth, um, that our education really doesn't prepare us to sort of look at and raise questions about images, to slow them down, to spend time with them, to turn that something, to turn things that are instant into things that are temporal, where we spend time with them. So, for me, um, while I would acknowledge that there are significant differences between the ways in which images and written words function, um, I don't think we've yet figured out whether or not that's something that is unavoidable in terms of their power, or whether it's simply that we're still living in a culture which, although it's permeated by images, um, doesn't view the analysis and interpretation of images as a basic part of becoming an educated human being. Mm. So, so, so things aren't bright. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, I think that they're very bright. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I think these questions are on the surface of our world. Yeah. I think the abuses of stereotype are becoming, you know, people. This country got led into a war through stereotypical images. Absolutely. Not only of the enemy, but also of the hero. I mean, you know, when when yeah. when 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 George Bush announced the war on terror in August of two thousand three, two thousand two, excuse me, um, um, he did it in front of Mount Rushmore, yeah. and the photographers who were who were there in order to record the moment were placed in a perch where the only way they could photograph him was using uh, telephoto lenses. And telephoto lenses tend to collapse space. And so the head of Bush and the head of Washington and Jefferson and Theodore Roosevelt and Lincoln were all the same size. I mean, that's strategic stereotyping. It's also disgusting. <laughs> but, but you know what? Yes. Those, those things have immediate impact. No, I know. I know. But their that's durability yeah. is questionable. Right. And I think people now looking at those images bring to them um, an, a reality that has been unfolding over time. And, 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 and the power of those kinds of images, in, in my thought, the power of those kinds of images began to break down yeah. when he tried to use that te technology mm. with all of his lighting specialists and cinematographers and so on um, in, in New Orleans. And where, you know, you had a city that was totally devoid of electricity, and here's this president being lit up, you know, by the generators that his crew carries with them. Right, right. And, you know, there was such a disconnect between the devastation that was around there and this kind of attempt to, you know, create a sort of feel-good concept of leadership that right. even he couldn't pull it off. Right, right. An attempt to pull off kind of a mini Potemkin village, if you will. Right. Uh, um, I want to thank you so much. We've run out of time, uh, Stuart Ewan. The uh, the book is uh, Typecasting the, on the Arts and Sciences of Human Inequality. Stuart Ewan, thank you for joining us here on Weekly Pleasure Signals. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, 
or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.